Good morning, beloved. It's so good to be gathered with you together to consider God's word and to sing his praises. Let's um, pray together now. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would um, visit us now in the preaching of your word. We ask that you would give us the wisdom that you promised, that you would not hold back if we simply ask. And we ask, O oh Lord, that you would guide us in every way in our service to you. Help us to live faithfully for you in this dark and perishing world, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is the fourth in our sermon series called Bless the Block. Uh, the aim of this sermon series is really to develop a organized, systematic approach to being a congregation that blesses our neighborhood, that blesses the block. Um, to organize and pursue a systematic approach to our own flourishing and the flourishing of our neighbors. We began this series uh, in the first sermon with a focus really on our identity as exiles. We saw from Jeremiah 29 verse 4 and 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 and many other places that um, as Christians we are an exiled people. This world is not our home. We're made for another world. And as exiles, we are people then who are uh, called and forced uh, to live in a place that's not our natural home. And sometimes we choose that, particularly for the sake of the gospel. Um, but in any case, we are aliens and strangers. We are pilgrims and sojourners in the world. And so there's no way for us to live as God would have us live, except that we embrace this identity as exiles and embrace the place of our exile as well. Then we, in the second sermon, considered this question, what kind of God would send his own people into exile? We were still there in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 4, and we saw three things about the character of God in that verse, that he is a God who still speaks to his people, even though they be in exile. And he is a God who still uh, saves his people. Uh, he is a God of covenant love and all power, and he uses it to deliver his people. And he is a God who sends his people. Exile is just one form of the sending that God does. And, and ultimately, he's a missionary God. So he sends us all into the world to make him known. And so we wanted to be clear in our own minds about what God is like, because that helps us to understand our exile experience more effectively. Then last week, we turned to um, the first of the commands that God gives Israel uh, during their exile. See there in Jeremiah 29, verse 5, where he says, says, build houses and live in them. And we were meditating on the fact that here you have a people who have been conquered and sent into captivity. And yet God still speaks to them this command, assuming that conquered though they are, they still have capacity to produce for themselves uh, the things that they need. Like in this case, shelter and a home. And we saw how this notion of build houses and live in them really sort of uh, projects this idea that they had to be fully present in the place where God has sent them. In our language, we would be fully present on the block. And that's going to be the place of our flourishing. So that exile isn't only punishment, as it was the case with Israel. It is also God's plan for our betterment, for our blessing. So now we come to consider the second of the commands that God gives his exiled people 
Also there in Jeremiah 29 verse 5, where the word of God says, plant gardens and eat from them. Now, if you are taking notes this morning, uh, our outline is going to follow three sort of simple observations. Number one, we want to think about the command to plant and eat. Plant and eat. Number two, we want to think about our local reality here in D.C. How does this relate to our lives here in Washington, D.C.? And then number three, we want to think about our plan as a church. How do we, how do we hope to implement this command, this ancient uh, command to Israel? How do we hope to sort of rightly apply it to our lives today? Jeremiah 29, I'm going to read for context, verses 4 to 9. Look there with me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Again, our text, our key verse, verse 5, Plant gardens and eat their produce. If you want to sort of put one overarching point over this sermon, uh, you might put it this way. Self-sufficiency also requires taking control of our food and diet. Self-sufficiency requires taking control of our food and diet. So not just our housing needs, but now our dietary needs as well. And we're going to see this uh, as we unpack this verse. So think, for example, uh, about the first command here, plant gardens and eat their produce. It's pretty straightforward, really. But it's an interesting command in the context of Israel's exile in Babylon. It's interesting because Babylon was known for its gardens. If you ever heard of the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, you know that that's one of the seven wonders of the world. The Hanging Gardens were legendary sign of Babylon's wealth and opulence and leisure. These were not gardens for food. These were gardens for play. These were gardens for pleasure. So Nebuchadnezzar had built an, an ancient city that, that was reflective of the grandeur and the wealth of his empire. And so Israel is in Babylon, this place known for the hanging gardens, but, but they are exiles. So, so Israel is existed as an exile community in the shadows and back alleys of the most powerful world at the time. A powerful nation at the time. It's as if they moved to Washington, D.C. and lived in the southeast. But notice, in Israel's exile... It's as if God has actually taken them back to the Garden of Eden. The hostile, untamed environment of Babylon is being subdued and cultivated just as Adam and Eve were to do in the Garden. 
The hanging gardens are not the true work of God. The work of God is this small, seemingly insignificant return to the command of Eden. To plant, to cultivate, to eat. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Now, last week we pointed out that the word build in verse 5 suggests that Israel was to assume control of the means of production for their housing needs. In the same way, the word plant assumes a certain level of self-sufficiency, a certain level of ability and capacity. So the entire prophecy of, to Israel is built on this notion of community self-sufficiency, of, of community self-reliance, particularly in relationship to Babylon. That's the only way to flourish as an exile. We can't flourish as an exile community if meeting our basic needs depends on the generosity and the kindness of the people who oppress us, who oppose us who've conquered us. To overcome the smothering effects of captivity, the community must find a way to provide for itself. I mean, in Babylon, there was no refugee resettlement program. In Babylon, there were no uh, safety net, government-funded safety net programs for people. In Babylon, there were no civil rights to gain and no civil rights to enforce. Everything would have to be done fubu, for us, by us. So the answer to Israel's food problem was for Israel to become food producers. Notice, they are to plant gardens themselves. They're not simply to be consumers. They're not to go shop at the market. They don't have enough money for that, probably. Um, if they rely on the food production of the Babylonians, they're going to starve or have terrible diets. So they have to be producers. And they have to eat what they produce. In other words, they were to benefit from their labor. They were to own both the means of production as well as the fruit of production, both literally and figuratively. Now, working with their own hands and literally planting their own food helps ensure that the exiles depend on God, not on man. This helps ensure that the exile uses their own human capacity and capital to secure their livelihood and future. It's a picture of a conquered people refusing to be a defeated people. So not the same things. You can lose a war without losing yourself. You can lose a war without losing your abilities in the grace of God. So, the resistance of Israel looked like self-sufficient flourishing. Listen, beloved, it is never God's plan to make his people dependent on unbelieving others. It's never his plan. Isaiah 31 verse 1 says this, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. And rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Woe to them. There's a judgment on them. You know the words of Psalm 20 verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So they're building and planting. They're living in the houses they built, eating the food that they planted. These were acts of faith. These were acts of dependence upon 
God whom they were looking to, not man. They weren't trusting the horses and chariots of Babylon or any other place. Not for their well-being, not for their flourishing, not for their needs. Beloved, it's God's plan to show the world how much better it is to depend upon him, even if you are in exile, taken off in captivity. It's God's plan to show the world how much more fruitful life is and can be when God is our hope and our refuge, even in the midst of hostile circumstances. God may put us in exile just so we can show off the glory that comes from trusting in him when we have nothing else. That's what he's doing with Israel in the midst of Babylon. Now let me say a couple things about the nature of flourishing itself, the nature of, of well-being and, and of um, multiplying and producing. The fact that God issues this command to conquered exiles teaches us a few things about the uh, nature of flourishing. Two things in particular I want to bring forward. Number one, flourishing does not require freedom. Flourishing does not require freedom. Freedom is a kind of flourishing, and freedom is a context that is often good for flourishing. And 1 Corinthians 7, verse 21, speaking there to slaves, says, if you can, get your freedom. So freedom is to be valued, and, and even from natural law, we understand that freedom is a preferred state. But God has given us a grace in life, such that even without freedom, we can begin to flourish. It's the second thing about flourishing. Flourishing does not require financial independence. Flourishing does not require financial independence. It may produce financial independence, but we may begin to flourish long before we have any money at all. And beloved, we have tremendous examples of this from African-American history and from black church history. Remember that our exile experience can be layered. We're not only exiles as Christians, but we may be uh, refugees from war-torn countries, or, or we may have ethnic histories that, that, that where exile features pretty prominently. We're meant to learn and gather from that layered experience of exile. And, and one way to do that is just thinking here, in this example, about African-American history and black church history. Some of you may have read the uh, recently published book by Zora Neale Hurston, called Barracoon, subtitled The Story of the Last Black Cargo. It's the history of the last shipment of captured and enslaved Africans brought to the United States. That shipment occurred really on a bet between some gentlemen who said, you know, I bet you we can get around the prohibition of the importation of slaves and still bring a cargo here. And they did exactly that to South Carolina 50 years after the transatlantic slave trade had been outlawed in this country. 1927, Hurston interviews a man named Cujo Lewis. He's the last survivor of that slave ship, which was named the Clotilda. Lewis, uh, Zora Neale Hurston talks with Lewis about what life was like after emancipation. Enslaved people were freed into the U.S. economy without one red cent. They were not flourishing yet, coming out of slavery. They were not free or were barely free. 
uh, and they had no finances. And, and yet it's a story of a tremendous flourishing against all the sort of circumstances and odds. Listen to Kujo Lewis's account of, of what the African-American community did following emancipation. It, it illustrates how flourishing can begin before you have finances and freedom. He, he said this, we glad we free. But then you understand me, we, we can't stay with the folks what own us no more. Therefore, where are we going to live? We don't know. Imagine that's the same question that the Israelites are asking as they're going into Babylon. Where, where are we going to live? What are we going to do? And so after trying to work and save enough money first to pay their way back to Africa and, and discovering that that was too, um, that was too costly, uh, that community decided that they're going to try and purchase some land. They're stuck in this land of exile, so they're going to try to have some land on his own. So they asked Cujo to go to their former slave owner and to ask for land. And this is the story he tells. He says, Captain, jump on his feet and say, fool. Do you think I'm going to give you property on top of property? I took good care of my slaves in slavery, and therefore I don't owe them nothing. You don't belong to me now. Why must I give you my land? The Cujo tells Gumpa, that's another older member of the community, call the people together, and he tell them what Captain Tim said. And they say, well, we buy ourselves a piece of land. We work hard and save and eat molasses and bread and buy the land from the mayor. They don't take off one five cent from the price for us, but we pay it all and take the land. This is what Cujo and the rest of the people did once they owned the land. Notice this. Therefore, we build houses on the land, we buy, on the land we buy after we divide it up. Cujo take one acre and a half for his part. We don't pay nobody to build our houses. We all go together and build a house for one another. So then we get houses. Notice there, we don't pay nobody to build the houses for us. These are recently freed people from enslavement with, with barely a, a penny to their name who have found a way to gather together enough money to buy a piece of land. And on that land with their own hands, they build their own houses. And so much of this story takes place right there in a garden that they plant on that land. What they built on that land. When I think of Jeremiah 29.5, I can't help but think of this bit of history. But it's not unique. What happened to Cujo Lewis and the Africans in South Carolina happened all across this country. Black people joined together to begin providing for themselves. They founded black-owned banks, insurance companies, and mutual aid societies. They founded schools and universities. And at the forefront of this activity was the church black churches and white churches seeking the flourishing of an exile community spearheading this development when much of that movement had no wealth that was created and barely knew freedom. That's how we began to flourish in the land of our exile even before we were truly free. Before we had any real finances, the determination to flourish must become must come before the results of flourishing. The determination to flourish must come before the results of flourishing. And this is why our well-being, our flourishing, uh, our vital life is connected to faith in the first instance. 
because we have to believe that God is for our growth and development, our well-being. And that's what animates action. So, do you believe? Do we believe that God wants us as an exiled people to flourish, to be well, and to be so well and to flourish so much that, that it overflows into the blessing of our neighborhood as well? That, that's what he wants for Israel. That's what he wants for the church. Uh, Israel was to produce their own food. That, that would be an evidence of their flourishing, and it would bless them and bless the block. Do we have this kind of faith? to take our own flourishing in our own hands, to become producers and not just consumers, and to produce and to live off of the produce and to bless others with it. That's the biblical challenge for us. That's the biblical vision for us as biblical exiles. So let's bring this number two uh, down to the issue of food security and food needs in our own day and in our own community. Let's begin with a couple of definitions here. First definition is this, the definition of food insecurity. Food insecurity is a lack of access at times to enough food for an active, healthy life for all household members. So, you know, some of us grew up saying something like this, if one eat, we all eat, right? Well, there are some people for whom that's not quite true. Even they would want it to be true. They all wish to eat but at least some members of that household are often facing hunger um, and, and going without meals, sometimes for others to eat, um, but, but they're just unable to produce uh, or unable to secure a regular healthy diet to sustain all the activities of life. That's food insecurity. Now, next to that is, a, is an idea that often occurs in the literature um, right next to food insecurity, and that's the term of food desert. A food desert refers to geographical areas where people have limited access to healthy foods. So people live in a food desert when they have to walk more than half a mile in order to get groceries. They live in a food desert when 40% uh, of households don't have transportation. And they live in a food desert when the median income of that area is 185% of the poverty level. So uh, for a family of four, that's, that's having an income, a household income of less than $45,000 a year. Now, we've already seen that the median income in our section of the city is closer to about $35,000 a year. So think about what that is. That, that combination of things means you can easily get to food because it's tough to walk more than half a mile and carry a bag of groceries for a household. You can easily get the food. Um, you don't have a car. Um, you're, you're sort of living below poverty level. And that combination of things means that uh, for many people, their household is going to be food insecure. They're in a food desert without access to food. Uh, and, and their household is food insecure. Now, you might be able to guess where the food deserts uh, and, the, and the, the concentration of food insecure households are uh, in our city. It's east of the river. So in that first map that you see of Washington, D.C., the little orange dots are full-service grocery stores. If you look east of the river, sort of down in the bottom right quadrant there, uh, what you'll see is only three orange dots for all the neighborhoods east of the river, about 25% about of the city. 
What you also see is those large sort of um, reddish kind of sections. Those are all the areas that are food deserts in the city. So notice, of the 49 full service grocery stores in Washington, D.C., as I said, only three are in Ward 7 and 8. Ward 6 has 10 full service grocery stores. Ward 3, which is the ward with the highest income level in the city, has no food deserts, and Ward 2 only has one small one. What are you seeing there? Grocery stores are tending to go where people have a lot of money. Let's well, sort of represent this differently in the, in the graph here. The first graph here that you see is a pie chart. 51% of uh, all food deserts are in Ward 8. Another 31% are in Ward 7. So of all the food deserts in the city, 82% uh, of them is in the section of the city that we're focused on for the gospel. Well, obviously, food insecurity is connected with food deserts, as we've said, and those two things are affected by poverty. And those things are concentrated in our neighborhood through unjust policy, through history, and a whole bunch of other things. So let me give you quick stats in terms of poverty and, and hunger in our part of the city. The poverty rate for African Americans in D.C. Um, at the time of this, this report that I was reading a couple years ago was 27.9%. 27.9%, almost four times that of white residents at 7.9%. That makes black communities in D.C. very vulnerable to food insecurity. One in seven D.C. households is struggling against hunger, over 14%. D.C. has a higher rate of food insecurity among children than any other state. And around 31,000 children in the district do not know how they're going to get their next meal. See, if, if you don't own your own home and you're poor, there's a good chance you're also hungry. I, I like the way uh, the sister Beverly Wheeler of DC Hunger Solutions put it. She says, it's a fact that hunger and poverty go hand in hand. With any increase in poverty, we can expect more hunger higher rates of diabetes, obesity, and behavior problems. And, and hunger and food security affect each family member. So Wheeler went on to say, we know that when there's not enough food, parents will not eat so they can feed their children. That affects the parents' job performance and makes the children anxious knowing that mom and dad are not eating. Teenagers will not eat so that their younger siblings can. That affects the way teens perform at school. Senior citizens will go hungry and suffer in silence. So this issue of food security or insecurity affects every part of the family as, as they're trying to sort of balance how do, we, how do we make ends meet at the table and everybody eat adequately. And when it comes to food insecurity, so we're talking about something that, that affects the whole household. We're talking about something that really is a community crisis. So what's happening to address this? Well, one member of the Ward 7 Economic Council uh, talking about Ward 7 and 8 neighborhoods said this, that Ward 7 and 8 neighborhoods struggle to secure grocery stores and retail options because the areas don't have large concentrations of office buildings and many residents leave the wards to work in other parts of the city. The decisions are driven by numbers. Groceries will go where they think they can make a profit. 
I don't doubt that's true. Grocery store owners will go, by and large, where they think they can go a pro make a profit. At least the, the large grocery stores, the mom and pop and the corner shops, they seem to be in the neighborhood doing just fine, selling lots of sugar and, and bad products that, that folks are eating on. What we need are producers of food who are not motivated solely by profit. Poor neighborhoods will be food insecure and food deserts unless there's something like a Christian exile community that embraces their exile in that neighborhood for the blessing of the church and that neighborhood and who takes control of the production of food in such a way that they actually are able to meet the needs of the members of the church and the wider members of the neighborhood. So unless we do this with a mission motive instead of a profit motive, the hungry among us will be left behind. That's all that really means, that, that what that council member said, that if we're going to leave this to the market, then the hungry are going to be left behind consistently. That's why I'm really encouraged with the recent news of a new food co-op coming to Ward 7. Perhaps you've seen that news. You might know the story of, of Mary Blackford who won a grant of $150,000 from Essence and Pine Sol to bring a new co-op to Ward 7. It's a co-op that is aimed at fighting against hunger and addressing this food desert issue. I love the mission. Market 7 is what it's called. Market 7's mission is to revitalize and restore the economic stability, holistic health, and the social needs of the residents in the, in the Ward 7 community. And they then they go on to break this down a little bit. I love this part of the mission statement where they say they want to shift the culture and attitude of a historically underserved neighborhood to one of abundance, vitality, and total wellness. Oh, that's spot on. That's spot on. Sounds, sounds pretty consistent with Jeremiah 29, doesn't it? See, we, we can't be an exile community that blesses the block if we have a deficit mentality. If we have a mentality that says we don't have anything, we don't have enough, we can't do anything, we've actually got to shift the attitude of the church, ourselves first, and, and by extension begin to shift the attitude of the neighborhood from one of deficit to abundance. Why? Because we have a God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. We have a God who controls and owns all things. I don't know anything about Miss Blackford's faith, but I know people of faith ought to be doing this kind of development and work. So what are we going to do? It's our third thing. What's our plan as a church? What impact will ARC make on the food security and health of our church family and our community? Well, beloved, as we've been saying in this series so far, we must organize ourselves to do the kinds of things that God calls us to in Jeremiah 29. And it, specifically, this morning, we're talking about the necessity of organizing ourselves to plant gardens and to eat their produce. And I don't think we're meant to take that text and make it sort of symbolic or figurative. I think we're meant to take that text and we're meant to apply it actually. 
So just as the as we're going to have a PSA team with, for that focuses on build houses and live in them, the sort of build and live team, uh, we need a PSA team focused on plant gardens and eat from them, a plant and eat team. And those teams will have similar kinds of objectives, similar strategies. The P is for prayer. We're going to pray because we depend upon God and he has told us to make our requests known. But then we're going to also S, we're going to study. We're going to think about these issues um, broadly. We're going to think about these issues in our specific context because we want to be informed enough to A, to act, to put in place action plans that help us to address these issues as effectively and as systemically um, and self-sufficiently as we are able to. And so we want a PSA team that's focused on planting gardens and eating from them, who, who have basically this charge. To pray, study, and act. To foster self-sufficient, God-dependent options for food security for all the members of ARC and for the members of our community. So we're looking not just for um, kind of options that, that might be considered um, yeah, safety net stuff or other kinds of things. That's fine. We want people to access what the government makes available. Is one of the ways our government is different from Babylon. That's fine, but those things are not guaranteed. They're not always safe. They change and so on. This is why self-sufficiency is critical. We've, we've got to look for options that change the game. We've got to look for options that allow us to take control of production, and in that control of production allows us some security as an exiled community uh, in meeting the basic needs that we have. So we need to think about this on a church-wide level. We need to think about this on an individual level. Church-wide, some questions that come to mind. Do we need to address the food desert situation in Ward 8? Seems we do since we have most of them in our neighborhood, in our ward. Do we need to organize a co-op or join a co-op that already exists and contribute um, energy and resources to uh, some work that's already begun? Do we need to have a volunteer drive for some of the community gardens in the neighborhood? What can we do to bring more awareness uh, to the community about those community gardens? Or what can we do to bring more awareness in the community uh, about organizations that are here, agencies that are working on food security, Martha's Table and uh, all kinds of other groups? How do we shine a light on those folks? And how do we partner with those folks to uh, make sure the mission of uh, having food secure households is advanced? Those are sort of church-wide questions the PSA team uh, needs to take up, and there are many others, I'm sure. But then we need to also act as individual Christians. This needs to be a part of our personal discipleship. So, so three things, three quick applications for us as individual Christians. Number one, practice hospitality. And be sure to invite people who may be food insecure. This is what Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. Don't just invite people who actually don't need you in any way and, um, you know, eat just fine at home themselves. Be sure to include people who actually have no way of paying you back. Now, if somebody started inviting you to your house, don't, don't start wondering, getting all insecure, thinking, oh, he must think I'm poor and get, get proud or something. We don't fellowship with everybody. I'm just saying we also need a lens by which we're sort of thinking about who are people around me in my network, in the church family, in the community, who might be struggling, 
And let me invite them and be sure to include them and love them as people made in God's image. So number one, practice hospitality. Number two, get a job. Get a job. Second Thessalonians is pretty clear. Uh, or Thessalonians is pretty clear. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. Right? So, so some of us are, I don't want any of us to be sort of feeling a sense of entitlement. And as was the case in Thessalonica, are kind of leaning back and saying, well, Jesus will be back soon, so I don't need to get no job, and, and you guys are going to share with me. No, 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 that's sin. That's laziness, right? Remember, we're meant to be producers. Um, we're meant to, to do the earth and, and bring forth fruit and bud, and, and we're meant to work. So get a job, and until you get a job, volunteer, be productive, be fruitful, um, because that's God's main way of meeting our needs. And so we got to give that message as well. Third application. This is an application you hear in all the sermons from this point on. Pray earnestly about which PSA team the Lord would have you serve in. We're going we're gonna to sort of have every individual member of the church assigned to a team. And calling everyone to sort of, um, because this is our mission as a church. This is, this is what God has called us in the neighborhood to do, to work for the, the flourishing of our neighbors spiritually and in every other way. So all hands on deck. Which team does the Lord seem to be drawing you to? Ask him to give you a passion and a burden and a willingness unlike anything you felt before. So practice hospitality. Get a job if you need one. Uh, and, and pray and ask the Lord to guide you to a PSA. Now, a couple of times as we conclude, I've mentioned that we need to do this work as an act of faith in God. But beloved, we also need to do this work realizing that physical food is not our only need. It's not even our most pressing need. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In an ultimate sense, Jesus is himself the Word of God. He is the Logos of God. And we don't have life until we feed upon Jesus. Re remember what we read in John chapter 6 earlier in the service, where Jesus says of himself, I am the bread of life. He says that the work of God is that all people would believe in him, the one who is life and the one who gives life. So here's the invitation that Jesus makes to the world that he makes to you right now if you're watching. Jesus said to them uh, in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Did you see that? If you come to Jesus in faith, believing that he is the son of God, that he has come to rescue us from God's judgment, that he died on the cross for your sins personally, just as he died for my sins personally, and he was raised from the grave for your justification, for your righteousness with God, just as he was raised from the grave for my righteousness with God. If you believe on Jesus in this way, you'll never hunger and never thirst. He will be your food. He will be your drink. See, I, I know that there are folks out there who, who are hungry and thirsty, not physically, but spiritually. And you've been hungry and thirsty for a long time. And honestly, you, you've tried to satisfy that hunger and thirst with various kinds of appetites. 
uh, you, you've dabbled in a little religion over here, you've dabbled in uh, work, you've dabbled in sex, you've dabbled in all kinds of things that you were hoping would fill that emptiness, would fill that hunger and quench that thirst. And if, if you think about it for a moment, you, you just would have to admit that, that since you've gone from this thing to this thing to this thing, that none of those things have really actually permanently satisfied the hunger and the thirst. They weren't meant to. They weren't meant to. There's only one who satisfies our hunger and satisfies our thirst and does it permanently and does it perfectly. That's Jesus Christ, the bread of life. And that's why we must believe in him. That's why we must come to him as he says, because we were made to be satisfied. We were made to be filled. We were made to have all of our thirsts and hungers quenched. But we do that in a relationship with God. That's why he died for us. That's why he was raised for us. And he's coming back for all those who trust in him. I pray this morning and all this talk about planting gardens and eating, you would plant your garden in Christ and you would feed upon him by faith and he would be your life and he would sustain you in every way just as he promised. Do not refuse that offer. It is life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for sending Jesus the bread of life. And we thank you so much that in him, Lord, we have all that we need. In him, Lord, our hunger for you is satisfied. In him, our thirst for you and our thirst for righteousness is satisfied. So help us by faith to, to feed upon him, to receive him, to follow him, and Lord, we pray that you would help us as a church to walk out the vision that you've given us. You've given us these divinely inspired words in your book, and, and you're calling us to obedience, Lord. And so we pray that you give us that obedience that comes from faith. We pray that we would not shrink back doubting. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would keep us from feeling overwhelmed by the magnitude of the problem, Lord, and that you would keep us from unbelief and faithfulness and faithlessness, excuse me so that we might attempt great things for you. You're a great God and you're worthy of our greatest offerings, which is our self and our entire devotion to you. Lord, we're in a neighborhood that you have sent us to. We're embracing our lives here. We pray that more and more that you would help us to be a blessing to our neighbors. We, we don't want to be part of what displaces others. We won't, don't want to be um, part of what seems to take away from others. We want to be here as a blessing. We want to be one with our neighbors. We want, as your people, to hold up Jesus high, that they might see him, Lord, in our preached word, our words of evangelism, and they might come into contact with him through our acts of kindness and mercy and love. Help us, O oh Lord, we pray, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.